0: This is the History Tavern Podcast. On July 14th, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln wrote a letter to General George Meade expressing his disappointment in Meade's decision not to attack Lee's army before they crossed the Potomac River following the Battle of Gettysburg. In the unsent letter, Lincoln wrote, Again, my dear General, I do not believe you appreciate the magnitude of the misfortune involved in Lee's escape. He was within your easy grasp, and to have closed upon him would, in connection with our other late successes, have ended the war. As it is, the war will be prolonged indefinitely. Richard Schaus, the author of Lee is Trapped and Must Be Taken, dropped by the History Tavern to talk about Meade's actions during the Gettysburg Campaign and Lee's Retreat. obviously the book is Lee is trapped and must be taken 11 fateful days after Gettysburg. Uh, but let's, you know, let's, let's, uh, let's start before the battle of Gettysburg. And, uh, though this podcast won't be released for a few days, it is June 28th, 2020, which is a significant day, our anniversary in the life of George Meade. So can you talk about his ascendancy to the, uh, command of the Army of the Potomac, and you know what what he's tasked with on that fateful day. yeah, that's it's
1: an interesting to take a look at at Meade's um, appointment to command. Apparently, there had been some concern over General Hooker's conduct of the Battle of Chancellorsville. Um, there was a huge amount of disappointment because Hooker had, a decent plan ongoing and he seemed to suddenly get very very cautious when he had Lee in a in a very bad situation Lee's flank was being moved upon after the crossing of of the river to uh, where Lee's lines at Fredericksburg which were not necessarily facing to the west were suddenly under threat from the west and Hooker just simply pulled up after beginning his advance and Lee had sent uh troops to meet this federal advance and I don't nobody I think is really certain about what happened uh Hooker seemed to think that uh, indicate that his main purpose had been met but whatever whatever evolved it certainly was an unexpected serious defeat For Union forces, Joe Hooker's army was forced back across the Rappahannock again, and nothing barely actually came of it except for the fact that a very small, a much smaller Confederate force defeated a very significantly uh, superior Union force. And if you combine that defeat with General Jackson's attack on the Union flank, I believe it was the second day of Chancellorville, which literally um, took the 11th Corps out of the out of the whole battle and certainly disrupted every activity. And it caused a great amount of dissatisfaction with the administration with General Hooker. So at some point in time, the way of thinking, apparently, uh, President Lincoln, who was the commander-in chief of all US military forces had still had faith in General Hooker. He had said at one point that he was not going to change commanders simply because one there was one misfire, I think it was he so way he put it. And Hooker was still in command of the army in well into June, which was a month after the defeat at Chancellorsville. And one thing that, that interesting to note is that after the Battle of Chancellorsville General Hooker communicated primarily directly with the president which was unusual because he had General Henry Halleck who was the general-in-chief who was supposed to be the next step in in Hooker's chain of command with the president being at the top but Hooker communicated directly with President Lincoln and part of this was because there was a distrust and a certain dislike between the two men, between Halleck and Hooker. And this caused uh, a, a great amount of animosity and difficulties within Hooker's army, for Hooker and for uh, General Halleck. Well, close to the time that Meade received his unexpected appointment as commander, and there was a change of command, um, the president decided that that or that process of his discussing military matters directly with General Hooker needed to be corrected, that Halleck was a military thinker, he was a general, he was the general-in-chief, and Lincoln directed that um, Hooker communicate with his superior, next-in-line superior, it was General Halleck, and that, of course... Uh, was something that General Hooker didn't like. He had a fairly decent relationship with with the president, and he could talk to him, felt he could talk to him. But between General Halleck and General Hooker, there certainly was a great amount of distrust and, and no respect what, uh, really whatsoever between the two officers. So at one point, right around, I think it was the 26th or the 27th of June, General Hooker stated literally that the federal forces at Harpers Ferry were virtually useless at Harpers Ferry. And he requested that because of the supposed superiority of the Confederate Army was now actually moving in to Maryland and moving into Pennsylvania at that time, Hooker wanted every uh, trigger puller he could get. And those 10,000 or so troops, something like that, I believe, at Harpers Ferry, would certainly be welcome reinforcements of the Army of the Potomac, which was moving up to intercept Lee's army and maintain its position or get to a position between Lee and Washington, D.C. And Halleck jumped at the chance when Hooker said, if I can't have the garrison at Harvest Ferry, I respectfully resign command of the Army of the Potomac and whether he expected it to be accepted or not, Halleck jumped at it and said, uh, you, those troops will remain in Harper's Ferry. And he talked to the president apparently because he indicated that the president who had appointed Hooker was the only individual who could relieve Hooker. But either, however it worked out, Hooker was relieved of command. And now the administration, President Lincoln primarily, General Halleck, uh, Secretary War, Stanton, Now they had an issue of who is going to replace General Meade, I'm sorry, General Hooker, in command of the Army of the Potomac, especially since with with Lee on the move, uh, it certainly looked like there was a major battle imminent uh, between Lee's army and the Army of the Potomac, whose primary mission was to intercept and destroy Lee's army with a secondary mission to protect Baltimore and Washington. As well they could. So, depending on there aren't we didn't I haven't found a lot of information on exactly what accurately took place in terms of deciding uh, who would replace General Hooker. There was a rumor or a word, and this is from Meade himself. He had recorded that I think in a letter to his wife, or in June that. Word had been received by General Reynolds, who was very popular within the Army of the Potomac, General John Fulton Reynolds, who commanded the 1st Union Army Corps and had committed, uh, had commanded and was commanding, I think at the time, what was the right wing of the Army of the Potomac, which was three corps, his own 1st Corps, the 5th Corps, and the 11th Corps, which would later become the, actually become the left wing of the Army of the Potomac under General Meade. And Reynolds was a very popular officer and that some of this is a little interesting because Reynolds had really not done anything to prove himself as a Corps commander. Uh the battles that he had fought as a whole corps commander, he had not really distinguished himself, but he had a great reputation and was very was very popular within the commanders, the other corps commanders the Army of the Potomac. And he and Meade were friends, but to some extent they were also rivals. And there's an indication uh, from Meade that he, to some extent, was a little bit jealous of Reynolds and had, in a way, wished that Reynolds would have somehow moved out of the picture, which would have given him a little more authority. There's a hint of that in some of uh, General Meade's papers. You had General Reynolds getting the hearing a rumor that he was being considered for command of the Army of the Potomac. And this is well before it actually occurred when it appeared that, General, uh, that President Lincoln was not looking to replace Hooker at the time. So apparently General Reynolds takes a leave of absence and goes to Washington, D.C., meets with the president, with Halleck, and probably some others, and flat out says, I will not accept command of the Army of the Potomac unless I have a free reign. I do not want interference from anybody else, especially Washington D.C. And uh, that was certainly unacceptable to Halleck and the president because it would have, it would have ended Reynolds' chain of command with Reynolds, and he would have had an independent command, and he would have not have been responsible to orders from Halleck as general in chief or the president. And that simply was not going to happen. So that takes any consideration of General Reynolds out of it. Then you had two other officers, superior in, in date of rank, which was very important in the Army at the time. They were senior to General Meade, and that was General Henry Slocum, who commanded the 12th Corps, and General John Sedgwick, who commanded the 6th Corps. Both of those officers were traditional, standard, run-of-the-mill, kind of wishy-washy, two-star commanders. They were very good good as corps commanders, but they weren't aggressive, they weren't innovators, they did not have the aggressive natures that would be necessary to defeat Robert E. Lee's army, which uh, had gained a lot of respect from the Union counterpoints simply because Lee had won about every battle uh, that he had fought against the Army of the Potomac, with the exception of Antietam which should have been a Union victory but actually ended up being kind of a stalemate and neither side won. So you had those two generals who indicated apparently to somebody in Washington that they did not want command of the Army of the Potomac, probably because they saw what had happened to prior commanders of the Army of the Potomac, who had not been very successful, and had been relieved, whether it was some interference in Washington, whether it was some inability, uh, lack of skill, or whether it was just Robert E. Lee out-generaling them. They indicated that they would not accept or did not want command, and apparently Reynolds himself had stated that he would be willing to serve under General Meade. Well, every other officer was the general officer corps commander would be considered from the Army of the Potomac. And I think that was simply because to go and get a general from a western theater or from Grant's Command or somebody out west would have taken too much time for them to adapt and understand the Army of the Potomac that they would command. When you have a battle imminent and you don't want a commander who's not familiar with the Army he's going to command getting into a major com- a battle, with probably the premier opposition army. So the choice would be from within the army of the Potomac. Now, one source that I have seen states that Stanton, Secretary of War Stanton and the president got into a conversation and Stanton suggested general Meade and that Meade's record had been solid up to that point. Although at Fredericksburg, his last, the last battle, he, well, Chancellorsville, um, Meade's 5th Corps was not heavily in, engaged, and that was the first battle in which Meade was commanding a corps. So he had not really been tested as a corps commander, but he had a solid record. He was a Pennsyl- Pennsylvanian, which meant that the battle, I think somebody even referred to it, to be fought in his own dunghill, as somebody put it, <laughs> and that Meade of all the rest of the generals that were under consideration, probably Meade was the best choice of a very limited and not so stellar group of general officers. And somebody, point, I think it was Stanton, pointed out that if Meade doesn't do well, well, President Lincoln can relieve him, too, because, you know, as commander-in-chief he has that authority.
0: You, you point out a bunch of times in the book about Meade's, uh, uh, you know, the difference between being a corps commander and the commander of an army. And yes. I think we see that uh, sort of play out very quickly once Meade uh, takes the helm. Um, there's a number of great quotes, and in, in his letters uh, to his wife are just so rich in terms of how he thinks things should go before he takes command. Uh, and then he does take command. So can you sort of talk about, you know, the difference between being a core leader uh, and the difference, obviously? I mean, it, the answer seems obvious, but, you know, once you have all that responsibility on your shoulders, you know, uh, all the philosophical thoughts in the world, you know, uh, d- sometimes they just don't come into play. Can you sort of talk about that?
1: You're, you're absolutely right. Um, it's, it's easy, it was easy for Mead. to, to look from the outside in, and say that he literally analyzed the performance of every pred- every one of his predecessors, commanding generals in the Army of the Potomac, and found and identified what he believed were their flaws, and certainly indicated that if he was in command, which he didn't expect to some extent, but he certainly would have eagerly accepted, based on his his correspondence, especially that with his wife, Meade analyzed the performance of every one of his predecessors and described where they came up short and what he thought was necessary. And one of the things that he primarily discussed was that they weren't aggressive enough. They, they had, to, you had to take risks in order to be successful. He point blank stated that that you have to, in order to be successful on a battlefield, you have to be willing to take risks. And McClellan had not moved anytime soon after Antietam, and Hooker had just given up on himself, if you will. That puzzled Meade to some extent, because he wasn't willing to give up on Hooker, but uh, Hooker and Meade got into it for another reason, um... Hooker believed that Meade had said that the Army should withdraw from its position at Chancellorsville, and Meade emphatically said he was for taking offensive action. And there's a little bit of truth in both versions, but Meade was upset with Hooker for backing off of what appeared to be a good plan at Chancellorsville, and as well as the performances of everybody that that had command before that. Once Meade receives the notification that he is now, in the early morning hours on the 28th, that he is now in command of the Army of the Potomac, he begins to realize that there's a lot more to it than maybe he could, had considered. Even if he considered it once it happened, it was somewhat overwhelming to him. And he now was a semi-independent commander. And as a corps commander, he obeyed the instructions of either another commander placed in between like a wing commander uh, or a grand division commander, which had happened before. But now he was the guy. He wasn't just somebody taking orders from the commanding general. He was the commanding general. So he was responsible for seven infantry corps. Um, the Cavalry Corps, and all the artillery, as well as all the logistics, all the medical, everything else associated with the Army. And whether he had considered it fully or not, suddenly he realized that, hey, the buck did stop with General Meade. And it was an overwhelming, I'm sure he was, he, was, he had expected it, but no matter how much he had prepared or planned or thought about it, it just, when it actually happened, I think he was somewhat overwhelmed. And then you add the factor that he would be going up against Lee's army, which was actually moving into Maryland and Pennsylvania. And was he believed, based on some of the intelligence that he wanted to believe, and we do get into the intelligence he received, um, that Meade wanted to believe that he was outnumbered uh, simply because it would allow him to Act cautiously, and um, as in as we saw on Gettysburg, act primarily on the defensive right, right. throughout the battle.
0: I want to get into the intelligence because I know you have a background in intelligence, uh, and 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 that you know you, that part of the book, and it's all over the book, is very fascinating. Um, but before we go there, you know, I just want to ask again, just to sort of piggyback on what you're saying about the pressure that's on Meade. I mean, it's, it's immense. I mean, Lee's army is in Pennsylvania. There does appear to be a very legitimate chance that, if, you know, if Lee, not to play the what-if game, I, I'm not one that usually does, but a victory for Lee would have been very significant. Um, you know, the pressure that's on Meade is absolutely enormous. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think that can be overstated.
1: That That's true. He was under a tremendous amount of pressure. Um primarily because simply because here you have a corps commander and Meade had had not shown any particular skills other than he would obey orders he was he was apparently a good corps commander uh, as an as an organizer and as uh, not necessarily from a logistics standpoint which was actually I was in primarily in intelligence and logistics end of intelligence, which is really interesting because logistics is is a tremendous thing, which Meade was now responsible for supplying that army. Yes, And without, you know, it's it's hard to fire a musket if you don't have any rounds. Same with artillery, same with food, same with water. Everything that an army needs to fight has to be supplied, and Meade was now in charge of supplying his army, uh, which he might not have thought that much of, But now it was part of his whole uh, responsibility. And you had a number of sources of intelligence. And one thing that we found interesting was you had cavalry, General Pleasanton's cavalry troopers, generals, providing intelligence simply because they were basically the eyes and ears of, of the army. They were the ones that maintained the closest proximity to the enemy in order to gain information and in order to prevent Stuart, Lee's uh, in, a cavalry commander, from obtaining information on them. It was screening and reconnaissance, two primary uh, responsibilities for cavalry, not talking about combat, fighting, uh, that they were responsible. And Meade seemed to rely more on General Pleasanton's Information, which often was not that accurate, than an organization he had, which he had not was not familiar with, which had been uh, been begun under General Hooker, called the Bureau of Military Information, uh, led by Colonel George Sharp, who answered to General Patrick, who was the Provost Marshal General of the Army of the Potomac. Now, the BMI, Bureau of Military Information was what we would later call all-source intelligence. BMI agents acted behind Confederate lines, they interrogated prisoners of war, they worked with cavalry commanders uh, analyzing the data, the information that the cavalry commanders came, and they presented all of this to General Meade, and prior to that to General Hooker. Now Meade, this was new, period, new to the Army, new to everything, so Meade was apparently very apprehensive and he wasn't certain about what was this information that was coming in from the BMI. It was much more accurate than what he was getting from General Pleasanton simply because you had more sources. Multiple sources are an outstanding requirement in intelligence to get information from as many sources as possible so you can take a look and say okay these two agree and this one doesn't or these three agree and this one doesn't and make your best guesstimate because a lot of it is simply analyzing what you see and making a guess, making a decision, making an assumption as to what the opponent is intending to do. Where is Lee going? What is his intention? Um, Where is everybody? Where is Hill? Where is Ewell? And where is Longstreet? And all of those factors came into play, and they all affected General Meade's decision-making process prior to, during, and after the Battle of, of Gettysburg. Uh,
0: and he seems to, like you said, he's apprehensive about the information, but at this point uh, for the Union Army, a lot of this information is sort of remarkably accurate. Is that, is that uh, an accurate statement on my part? I mean, they, they you know, there's some very interesting characters, uh, Milton Klein, um, you know, these guys who do pretty uh, crazy things to uh, bring this information back to Meade. It's, it's accurate, of course, as a general, I think that you always would have to, um, uh, you know, sort of, it, it's it's information, you make it part of your equation, you can't uh, completely, uh, you know, sort of uh, go with it 100%, but um, this stuff is very, very accurate at this point for the Union Army. Is that true?
1: What he was getting from the BMI certainly was accurate. Um, much more accurate, and they were basing their, especially the numbers of the Confederate Army. Uh, a lot of it always comes back to Lee's outnumbering Meade, which had begun under Hooker, part of the reason Hooker wanted the garrison at Harper's Ferry to reinforce his army. And this would continue under General Meade, and Meade had a tendency simply because it would allow him to act caut- cautiously. Um, to take his time if you're if you're outnumbered there are certain things you can't do certain certain things you can do certain things you can't do and an outnumbered army tends to look on the defensive because the civil war proved that offensive operations are very difficult to coordinate and they often ended badly for the offensive uh, army so you had general Meade at some point hearing a report Getting a report is not from the BMI, who used much more, who did much more detailed analysis of the numbers of the Confederate Army. At one point, there was a report that reached General Meade from another source. It might have been General Helped, I'd have to go back and look to see that indicated that Lee's Army had ninety-two thousand infantry. Wow! Wow! And that would have put each, if you divided it up. Each infantry corps of three corps of Lee's Army, um, Longstreet, Ewell, and Hill, at 30,000 men, which would have been roughly three times as many as any single Union Army Corps, with the exception of the 6th Corps, which was the largest corps, by something like four or 5,000. So you can understand if here's 92,000 infantry, and that's actual trigger pullers, Uh, infantry and marching north not present and accounted for or present and not accounted for uh, in various functions. And you had the Army of the Potomac, which was operating somewhere around eighty-five, ninety thousand 90,000 total, not infantry, in in seven corps. So you could say somewhere around eighty, eighty-five thousand. 85,000 Uh, going back to the sources that we used, I'd have to go and and check to see what their exact numbers are. But the armies were relatively, in terms of infantry, the primary uh, combat arm, they were close to equal. And if you're close to equal with your opponent, you're not looking for offensive action because you want something like a minimum of three to one.
0: And And you're also dealing with, as you say... Uh, and you mentioned before, Lee's mystique. I mean, th- this idea that Lee hasn't walked away from a battlefield yet as a loser.
1: Yes, and I think that the if you call it, whatever you want to call it, you call it the Lee factor or whatever, if, if, if you're watching, if you're within the high command of the Army of the Potomac and you watch Robert E. Lee defeating supposedly the best generals that they had and every one of them lost the significant battle to General Robert E. Lee. Lee himself takes on the equivalent of, certainly, a number of additional troops simply because of Lee and the mystique that Lee... It's, it's, I think it was hard for General Meade to take a look at what General Lee did at the battles prior to Gettysburg and not believe that he wouldn't have taken the actions he did. He wouldn't have gone after Hooker actually moved offensively against hooker if he had been outnumbered what Lee was doing just wasn't indicative of a general who was outnumbered so in addition to these reports it certainly would be easy to understand that Meade would want or would believe that Lee outnumbered him and he would technically in a way want it so he would be able to act cautiously act more on the defensive so yes later after the Gettysburg campaign uh, General Patrick, who wrote an extensive amount, had a diary, uh, which is a fascinating read, if if you have a chance or if you haven't. He referred to it later in 1863 that General Meade had Lee on the brain. <laughs> and when, Lee, when Meade had Lee on the brain, he just wasn't thinking as clearly as he should have. But that gives you a bit of insight into why the rest of 1863 was so... Non eventful simply because that Meade, both Meade and Lee after Gettysburg, to include the pursuit, if you want to call it that, uh, until Lee recrossed the Potomac, were looking for an advantage. They both wanted to act offensively, but they wanted to have the advantage on their side. And considering that Lee knew he was outnumbered, especially after Longstreet was transferred with his corps. Right. Um, that he would look for an advantage before he took any offensive action. And Meade, who did outnumber Lee and did throughout the whole time period, was still looking for the opportunity to attain a position where Lee would be forced to attack him. Meade had seen what had happened at Gettysburg and prior to Gettysburg and simply could not think... As offensively and as aggressively as what would be needed after Gettysburg, in order for the for the Union to win a victory and to win the war, and certainly to defeat Lee's army, that right. would have to be done offensively.
0: Right. Well, let let's, and me just. I'm sorry. I'm he wasn't sorry, right. the guy. Yeah. Uh, no. Let Let's get into the pursuit uh, by starting with July 3rd and the state of both armies after Pickett's Charge. Um, uh, you know, you, you write about specifically about the losses, and there's a lot of Uh, very good first-hand accounts, especially from the Confederate side, uh, after uh, Pickett's charge has been repulsed?
1: After the attack on July July 3rd, um, certainly it had not gone the way Lee had anticipated, and both Pickett's division and Pettigrew's troops, which were the primary attacking units, had been repulsed. And a number of Confederates wrote that the opportunity there for a Union counterattack it was there, and should it have been, um, E.P. Alexander is one of the primary sources saying that Meade should have counterattacked, and a number of others say that there was a gap in the Confederate line uh, that could have been exploited. So. What they were saying was they expected Longstreet certainly had his artillery um, position to repel an assault. If they didn't have any long-range ammunition, they certainly had enough canister because Confederate artillery fired very few canister rounds, which is anti-personnel, anti-attack round. So they were ready, but certainly... uh, the attack had used up basically any reserves or whatever that, that Lee had available. So there there was amount of di- disorganization in the Confederate lines. Um, and the thought was that had me counterattacked that it might have been successful. Certainly it would have been difficult for the Confederates to repel a an organized counterattack. And that's where the whole key is. There was no Union force available that could have been organized to conduct a counterattack. It just wasn't there. Um, there were no corps in position, no, not even a division. What you had were a number of Union units that had participated in the repulse of Pickett and Pettigrew, but there was no organization. They were disrupted too, simply because they were involved in a, in a pretty heavy fight. So there was no union force somewhere behind Cemetery Ridge that could suddenly advance through the through the gap and attack um, the Confederate line. It just didn't exist.
0: Right, right. Hancock, I, I think you point out in the book, Hancock said, well, if I wasn't wounded, I, I, d- I definitely would have counterattacked.
1: Hancock provided us with a lot of information based mainly on his... Uh, testimony to the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War later in, which would be in early 1864. And Hancock related that he had had a discussion with Meade on the morning of July 3rd, and Meade told Hancock that if Lee attacked Hancock's position, Meade would attack, would counterattack if the, if the, the attack was repulsed, Meade would counterattack with the fifth and the sixth corps. That he would do that, and that's according to what Hancock said. Hancock went so far as to tell his senior division commander, um, General Caldwell, I believe it was, that if if he was attacked that day, then Caldwell was to counterattack. And Hancock later related that fortunately. That did not happen. The, the attack did take place; it was repulsed, but Caldwell, for whatever reason, did not attempt a counterattack. <laughs> and in his note that he sent to General Meade after he was wounded, he encouraged or told Meade that now was the time to send the fifth and the sixth corps in a counterattack against, you know, what he presumed was a disorganized confederate army and somewhere there was a gap he did identify what he believed were gaps in the confederate line after uh... pickett and Pettigrew's attack had failed yes hancock certainly believed that whether hancock would have been able personally to organize any kind of a force that would have stood a chance of penetrating and um, doing some serious damage some more serious damage is hard to say if he would have been able to organize. There just was no organized force to conduct a counterattack as it should have been conducted.
0: Right, right.
1: So Meade never indicated there was never anything from Meade's end of this thing is why he did not. He said later that he went up to Little Round Top and he talked about it and he had ordered a counterattack but there was everything was taking too long, it was too much disorganization. And there were a couple of Fifth Corps units Brigades, I believe, that did advance to some extent, but it never came to anything.
0: Right. Um, So uh, Lee, uh, to put it frankly, Lee knows he's got to get the hell out of there, uh, and he's got a couple options. What's his planned uh, plan to get out of Gettysburg?
1: Well, Lee made a determination, I believe, after um, Pettigrew's uh, failure. His army had been in the Gettysburg area for a long time, and considering that he was living off the land they had pretty much picked clean everything they could. The water, water availability was critical. They were, believe it or not, again, low on food, even though uh, they had been able to acquire a considerable amount of supplies. Once you've got that many men stationed in a given area, a restricted area, you can pick it clean pretty fast. He also was running low on ammunition, and he just made the determination that he needed to withdraw his army and get back to the safety of Virginia and get across the Potomac, get out of Pennsylvania, get out of Maryland. He had a number of options, but I think he pretty much determined that he needed, he had to get as many of his wounded out. He had to get all those supplies that he had gathered and still had, um, which does not just include foodstuffs and uh, and immediate supplies for the consumption of his army he needed to get everything that he had acquired and that that comes down to clothing uh, medical supplies everything and as many of his ambulatory wounded as he could get back south of the river cuz let's face it the south manpower situation was very drastic even at that time and any wounded soldier could get back south and could recover and then rejoin the Army was certainly better than having them captured and not being uh, exchanged, which was also happening at the time. The uh, Union was refusing to exchange prisoners. So he needed every man possible to get back. And the wounded, I'm sure, was a primary concern. So he didn't really have much choice but to withdraw as best he could over a limited amount of roadways back to Williamsport and via Hagerstown. Most of the movements took place in the direction of Hagerstown. And he would move, of course, his his wounded and whatever supplies that they had in immense wagon trains. And those trains would have to be guarded simply because he was still in hostile territory, so he was susceptible to cavalry raids and incursions by civilians who could certainly cripple a wagon uh, fairly easily before anybody knew what was happening. And that did happen. But he was concerned about harassment by Union cavalry and the fact that um, Meade might take up some action to cut him off and to prevent his escape, which was a major concern. So Lee really didn't have a lot of choices, basically what routes to take, Uh, And there were, he was limited in how to get back to Hagerstown and eventually to Williamsport. And from Williamsport, he had a pontoon bridge at Falling Waters, which unfortunately for Lee was partially destroyed, mainly destroyed by cavalrymen from French's command on the 4th of July. So Lee at that point didn't have a pontoon bridge. He didn't have a bridge. All he had was a uh, crossing point at Williamsport, and if the river would not cooperate, which indeed happened because of the heavy rains right after the battle, Lee was relegated. He was left with simply a ferry operation at Williamsport, was his only means to get his entire army, and that's everybody with his army, to include his combat arms and all his logistics, and a considerable number of teamsters and wagoneers into the thousands uh, who were primarily African-Americans who were actually slaves who had been rented by the Army of Northern Virginia who ran the wagons and were the Teamsters, which allowed white Southern troops to, it, it prevented them from, they didn't have to do all the maintaining the wagons, ride driving the wagons. They were allowed to, to, to act as uh, soldiers and be on the firing line. So he had to get all these, and he realized that he was going to have enough of a responsibility just to try and get as much of his army as he could back across the Potomac River.
0: Can you talk about the exchanges that take place between Meade, uh, from Halleck to Meade, and then from Halleck to Lincoln? Uh, It seems, and Stanton is also involved, I think Stanton is where the title of your book comes in, Lee is Trapped and Must Be Taken. Uh, This is something that, clearly in Washington, the politicians uh, see an opportunity, and they want this opportunity seized. Uh, Meade is on the ground, and Meade is making his own calculations. Can you talk a little bit about that dynamic and why there might have been sort of, uh, uh, in, not disagreement, but why is there a separation between Meade and the politicians in Washington?
1: Um It was more than just politicians because you had General Halleck in between the president and General Meade. General Halleck was General Meade's immediate superior who was in Washington, D.C. in the War Department. He was the overall general-in-chief of all Union armies, not simply just of the Army of the Potomac. And after that, you had President Lincoln who was the Um, commander-in-chief. Halleck's response was he was trying to appease, it appeared that he was trying to appease both President Lincoln, his superior, and General Meade, his army commander. And in doing so, he really, he provided no leadership for Meade. Um, He was, at times he would tell Meade that the President wanted Lee pursued and destroyed, which was in fact um, Meade and every general before him, the primary mission of the Army of the Potomac was to defeat the Army in Northern Virginia. This, the protection of Washington and Baltimore was a sec- secondary mission. So the president, the, the guy at the top who thought himself to be not a very, a very good military uh, strategist or understanding of military matters, And he often said, well, General Halleck is the general. He he knows what's going on. But President Lincoln had a very good understanding of what needed to be done. He saw the Battle of Gettysburg as a start, the beginning of the end, if you will. The first defeat suffered by Lee, and a serious defeat. But Lee's army obviously was not destroyed. It was not, it was damaged, and it was badly damaged to some extent, but it was not, non-functional. It was still a very dangerous organization, and Meade would emphasize that during the course of of the retreat and his um, following, his um, observation, his pursuit, if you will, of Lee's army. Meade was very hesitant because he saw that as a a wounded lion who could still turn and was capable of things that, if you looked at it from an from a logistical, from a logical standpoint, there was no chance that somehow Lee would be able to turn his defeated army around and actually threaten Washington or Baltimore or any more anywhere in the north. So, Meade would tell Halleck that he was doing the, he was going to do what he could. It was his intention to bring about another battle, the decisive battle. And he would tell Halleck that, um, one of the problems that we had in looking at General Meade's conduct after the Battle of Gettysburg and one of the standard defenses of Meade was that the Army of the Potomac was too badly damaged. He had suffered significant losses in personnel and leadership. He had lost Reynolds. He had lost um, Hancock. He had lost Gibbon. Um, And even the loss of good old General Daniel Sickles, who commanded the Third Corps. Sickles was an aggressive general. And that was needed. So one of the arguments is the Army of Potomac uh, was too badly damaged to effectively pur- pursue and destroy Lee's army. They did the best they could too, which was basically to follow, keep an eye on them, and prevent Lee from performing any mischief, which might be considered to be serious. Now, our problem with that, and one of the problems that I've had with Meade, is Meade never said that to Halleck. If you read the official records, you read the correspondence between the two generals. Nowhere does General Meade say, my army has been too badly damaged that I can, I can prevent Lee from doing anything else. I can escort him back down. I can make sure he doesn't do anything offensively. And to some extent, he, in a letter to his wife, he said that. The purpose of the administration would be, to make sure that Lee went back down, crossed the river, and then for us to reorganize and conduct new offensive operations, which had been the story of the war up to that point. You fight a battle, both sides, one side stays on the ground, the other side retreats, everybody reorganizes, and it all starts over. President Lincoln said this was the start. This campaign damaged General Lee. I want General Meade to just continue with with what happened at Gettysburg, and that in conjunction with General Grant's victory at at Vicksburg, if if General Meade can follow up his victory at Gettysburg with the destruction or substantial destruction or further damage of Lee's army, he saw the possibility that the war might end.
0: Right. Uh, It's so interesting, again, the letters that Meade writes to his wife, who's clearly a confidant and, and even an, an advisor. Um, and this language that he uses during the pursuit that, you know, essentially I suppose we'll have to battle Lee again. Um, you know, it, it, it appears that for Meade and and, and things that he wrote after uh, the campaign, that he was just content to let Lee get back over the river. Gettysburg was a huge victory uh, let's not get in the way of that by risking another defeat. Uh, I mean, is that, you know, I, I, I know that you spent a whole book writing about it. I mean, I, so I, I hate to make it as simple as one sentence, but was Lee, uh, was me just simply content with driving the invader uh, out of the north?
1: That is exactly what he said should have happened. As I point, he pointed out, and he said that the federal government, the government should have been should have confined, it's my requirement to drive Lee, which is funny because Lee, uh, because Meade really didn't know driving. If you think driving somebody out meant attacking, pushing them back, that never happened. So by driving, you mean just escorting, just to make sure that, that Lee did what they thought he was supposed to do. Um, then, yes, to some extent, Mead discovering that, There was a lot more to command than he thought. He was very wary of Lee's army, even though Meade was getting reinforced, and that's one point we make throughout the course of the book, was any reinforcements Lee got was kind of confined to a couple of regiments which crossed at Williamsport, but Lee still had the responsibility of sending some troops across the river in case the Union Army tried to flank him. So he had a... A very extensive defensive position that he occupied nine or 10 miles with somewhat around 45,000 men to include his cavalry actually occupying part of that defensive line and Meade was reinforced throughout the course of the time of our book those 11 days Meade received just about anybody that they could send to him and a lot of those troops were militia troops they weren't experienced Uh, some of them were veteran troops and some made it in time. Others were there, but were used to guard the supply line. Uh, Certainly, militia troops could handle guarding supply lines, and Gettysburg had proven that troops that were not experienced, not veteran troops, if they were assigned and put into brigades with veteran troops, could perform very well. We saw some Uh, examples at Gettysburg of inexperienced troops that handled themselves very well simply because they were fighting alongside veterans. So the idea that Meade believed throughout the course of his pursuit through the following of Lee that he was still outnumbered is is just simply does not hold up when you look at the numbers who were there. One thing that's of interest that we, we charted throughout the course of the of those eleven days was, and again, a lot of this is through Meade's correspondence to his wife because that's a primary source of the information, and we feel that Meade would be more honest with his wife than he would have been with um, Halleck or President Lincoln, and he he explained to his wife right at the start. When he was determining how he was going to pursue, what method he would take, would it be a direct pursuit or would it be a parallel course? Uh, and it, effectively, it was a voted on, and he decided to assume the latter and follow Lee on a parallel course. Which meant if he was going to engage Lee again at some point around Williamsport or Hagerstown, he would have to go farther and move faster than Lee, who was taking the more direct route. Although Lee was. A lot of uh, Lee's forces were encumbered by having to have their trains with them, so they could only move as fast as the trains could go in very, very, very poor roads and very wet, muddy roads uh, at the time. And so Meade was following a, a parallel pursuit. Initially, he said to his wife that it looked as if Meade was trying as hard as he could, making every effort to get back across the Potomac. And this went on. He told Halleck the same thing. So it was a matter of Lee's moving so fast, I don't think I can catch up with him. Right. I right. just, you know, my my guy, my army is, is moving some because I had held up my supply trains at way back in Maryland. I did not allow my supply trains to go to Gettysburg. They met later around Frederick in Maryland that he had some troops that were barefoot. His troops did not were not overly well supplied, but they did have the advantage of they knew they had whipped Bobby Lee and that would put a lot of sprint and a lot of spirit into the army and it certainly did, uh, which we saw specifically in diaries, regimental accounts, uh, letters home that the troops were, were, were more than willing to engage Lee again because they could see that they they knew they had beaten him, they could beat him again, and it might end the war, and that's what they were all hoping for. As, as Lee arrived in and Hagerstown and then Williamsport, around the 9th of July, Meade changed his opinion based on Lee had no choice, but until the bridge was fixed, until he could get everybody, all the noncombatants across the river, he had no choice but to dig in, but to form some kind of a line. Because he expected an attack in at any minute, that that Meade's army would show up and they would attack him. So he had no choice but to assume a defensive position. Meade took it to mean that. Plus, based on some information, primarily from a prisoner of war that apparently came from the 11th Corps, was sent on to uh, Meade's headquarters. This this POW now POW this deserter. He's probably a deserter. I think from Stewart's artillery which leads you to wonder how much he actually knew, he related that Lee had a bridge operating, that there was a bridge and, and that Lee was operating it and he was getting supplies there and he was sending, sending men, sending his non back, whatever. And at, at this point, the next day, I believe it was on the 10th of July, Meade writes a letter to his wife and suddenly says that Meade does not intend to cross the river. He's looking for another battle. And George Meade, who saw what happened won a defensive, purely defensive victory at Gettysburg, is not willing to fall into Lee's trap and attack him at Williamsport in the line. That Lee is dug in and he has to assume that Lee's got this magnificent line, which is another thing that we talk about is how good was this ten mile long line that Lee had. Right defended by a totally inadequate number of troops. How good was it? Alexander quoted as saying, well, it's kind of a clued together line. We put it together with good positions, a couple of good positions and that. Um, and some accounts, from some union accounts, stated both ways, that he had an excellent line. The other ones said that all we saw were just some, some thrown together breastworks and some logs piled up and there wasn't much of anything some related what they called Quaker guns, which were logs that were painted black and made to look like artillery pieces. So you get both um, both sides of the story. Lee had a great line. Lee had a uh, hodgepodge together line, and we really don't have that much. There are no photographs, no anything other than some probably some artillery positions that were dug similar to what you can see at Gettysburg. And so on the 10th, Meade has decided that Lee is not... Lee is not is not going to retreat. He wants to be attacked. If he wants to be attacked, I'm not going to give him the, the pleasure of attacking him there. So during that next period of time, Meade is gathering his forces. He's actually digging in probably as good as or better than Lee was digging in. Meade was assuming his own very s- significant line, And there are too many accounts in especially in regimental uh histories that talk about the troops digging in and digging in and then moving and digging in and moving and digging in and they were kind of confused as to why are we doing this? Aren't we supposed to attack Lee and prevent him from crossing the river? So and Meade actually wasted a number of days. He just took no action uh the twelfth and the thirteenth were primarily lost days. Right, right. When According to uh, President Lincoln's secretary, John Hay, they had received word from Meade that he would attack on the 12th, which did not happen. Meade tells Halleck on the 12th in the afternoon that he will attack on the 13th unless there is some something happens, something comes up that will prevent it. Well, that something that did come up was of his own doing. He suddenly decided he had not conducted enough reconnaissance and he needed to know more, and he waited over a day before telling Halleck, though, by the way, I didn't attack, yes, I didn't attack earlier today, but I'm going to attack tomorrow, which actually turned out to be a four-division reconnaissance and force, which was a reconnaissance and force. It was not an attack. So those, and it's, it's interesting that what you said appears to be a conclusion that Meade felt that his job was to drive, follow, pursue, ensure that Lee goes back South. And this is the, their soil and our soil part that infuriated the president when he said, it's all our soil and that, and president Lincoln said that again, also that it seems to me that there is too much emphasis on protecting Washington and not enough emphasis on destroying Lee. So he wanted to make it perfectly clear to Halleck to make it clear to Meade that Meade's job was to destroy Lee's army, not to protect Washington and Baltimore.
0: One or two more uh, before I let you go. I have to ask sure. you, because I've, I've been, you know, obviously uh, I read your book. I read a couple others in preparation. There's a lot of debate among uh, uh, not just historians, but uh, contemporaries of Meade about his use of councils of war. Uh, and and I, know, I know Halleck himself was uh, critical. Um, and, I, you know, as you write in the book, councils of war, especially for those who are schooled in, in military, particularly in West Point. Uh, everybody there knows that councils of war never fight. They're always conservative. Um, so what's your take on uh, sort of uh, first generally about councils of war and then on uh, sort of needs specific use of them?
1: Um, I believe the Councils of War, the initial thing came from Lord um, Nelson, who made a, a comment about that. Councils of War never fight. And then we talked about a number of historical philosophers that talk about Councils of War, that it's one thing to gather information from your subordinates. subordinates, but Meade took it a step farther. He had a council of war the evening of the second day of Gettysburg, and he had he had his subordinate commanders actually vote on a number of proposals, and that vote would be what he would do. Not that he he would listen to them and then make a decision uh, based on what. What their beliefs were. And you have to remember, through the course of this whole thing, these were general officers that had been considered and rejected for command of the Army of the Potomac. So the last thing that the administration, especially the president, wanted to do was rely on the votes of general officers who were considered not qualified to command the Army. That was Meade's job. They considered him qualified. He's the commander. He makes the decisions. And that was one thing that when it was way too late that Halleck told Meade, after Meade said he had held a council, uh, and this was on the 13th, that that Halleck blew up and said, councils don't fight. Make your generals do what you tell them to do. Um, so Meade took it a step farther, and he would let his subordinates make the decision. And it was kind of clever in a way because he could say, okay, I was relying on the expertise of my subordinate commanders and I could not go against their wise counsel. So it allowed him to kind of, if their guidance was good, he could say that if their guidance proved to be wrong, he could say, well, I did what they told me to do and I guess they were wrong. He also relied on a council to make the decision of how to pursue Lee, how to follow Lee, on the 4th of July. There was a council, and they decided to follow along parallel course and just keep make sure that Lee was between uh, Washington and... uh, that they were between Lee and Washington, and that a direct pursuit, which they began sort of with the reconnaissance by an entire Corps, the Sixth Corps, that a pursuit could be bottled up in the mountain passes uh, very effectively and would be useless. So you would have a whole 14,000 man corps held up by a few hundred infantry and some artillery on a mountain pass somewhere. So they decided and brought the Sixth Corps back from their reconnaissance and would pursue and follow Lee along parallel course. The, we talk specifically about the Council of War on the evening of the 12th, mm-hmm. which to me is fascinating because somehow... Meade managed to manipulate his subordinate commanders into being the bad guys, and that he was the good guy all along. It's fascinating because we don't have a lot of information about it, but what he accomplished by making himself look like the aggressive general, actually being overly aggressive, and his subordinate commanders voted to prevent him from being too aggressive, and that they would wait, and they would do some more reconnaissance, Um, it's fascinating. Uh, They're just, you could almost write a book about the, the council of war on the 13th of July and how Meade managed to manipulate his commanders and saying, I was all in favor of fighting, but they didn't want to, uh, when it's, so when you have just the opposite situation, uh, if you would have looked at those generals who voted against attacking, they were, uh, His more of his corps commanders, and those corps commanders consisted of three commanders who Meade himself had appointed were very lackluster generals. Now, Meade had the ability to appoint a number of aggressive commanders, those who had performed well at Gettysburg, and he chose William Hayes, John Newton, and John French. I mean, um, William French. Those were about the most lackluster three generals you could appoint to command corps in the Army of the Potomac. And then Meade would turn around and complain that he lacked aggressive, that he lacked good corps commanders. When three of those had been appointed by himself, and the commander of the 5th Corps had been his senior subordinate prior to his assuming command, and George Sykes was known to a lot of his nickname was Tardy George. So he had the ability to put three outstanding subordinate commanders in corps command, but chose to put three wishy-washy guys who he could guarantee were not going to vote for taking a risk, making an offensive decision. But those officers who didn't vote um, prior to the vote being taken, whether to attack or not to attack, General Warren, Governor Warren, who was the chief engineer of the Army of the Potomac, said later to the committee that he believed they would have sliced right through Lee's army if they had it attacked. General Humphreys, Alexander Humphreys, who became the chief of staff during the course of the pursuit after Butterfield left and during a, a temporary command by Pleasanton and Warren, General Humphreys also testified that he would have voted to attack. He, would, he should have, that Meade should have attacked General Hunt, who surprisingly had no role at all in the pursuit. Hunt voted or had said that he believed that he had a plan that um, Meade should have flanked, should have moved around Lee's flank and prevented him from retreating, which is also something that we bring up in in the book was that Meade had the ability to put up a bridge wherever he wanted and send troops across to prevent Lee's escape, at least to cut him off. So that option was there. It was not taken. And nobody actually crossed in any kind of a limited pursuit until the afternoon of the 14th, uh, which are two brigades of cavalry under General Gregg, later in the 14th, who headed towards Shepherdstown and ended up coming back. So that that ability to cut off Lee's escape or hamper it significantly and rescue 5,000 Union prisoners of war, who we also cover, who thought at any time they were going to be rescued, and it never happened, that... Somehow, if you read Meade's account of the Council of War, it doesn't match the accounts from, say, General Wadsworth, who was asked point blank in Washington why Lee was able to escape across the Potomac, and and Wadsworth said because nobody stopped him. And uh, General Alexander Hayes, who had performed extremely well at Gettysburg, who was just simply disgusted by the fact that Lee got away, as well as a great majority of the enlisted personnel and those folks who commented by letter and in regimental histories who were very disappointed that they did not get the opportunity to attack and defeat Lee at Williamsport because they believed they could have won. And some of them were very disappointed and were very angry with General Meade because, unlike most situations, here they had beaten Lee, He was in a bad position, he was cut off by a river, and they had all the confidence in the world that they could beat him again, and that they weren't allowed the chance.
0: The book is Lee is Trapped and Must Be Taken, 11 Fateful Days After Gettysburg, July 4th uh, to to July 14th, 1863. Richard Schaus, co-authored with uh, Thomas J. Ryan. It's a fantastic book. If you thought you knew everything about Gettysburg, think again. Uh, this is one you've got to read, uh, and it, and it's a great narrative as well. So, uh, Richard, I want to thank you so much uh, for talking to me. Really enjoyed the book, really enjoyed the conversation.
1: Thank you very much. I've always enjoyed the opportunity to talk about it because we did uh, so much enjoy writing it, and both felt, as you said, this is an aspect of after the battle of the campaign itself that has not been touched on, and we hope we gave the details. Um, to give you a better understanding, the reader a better un- understanding of what happened on those fateful 11 days after the Battle of Gettysburg.
0: Thank you for listening to the History Tavern podcast, and thank you to Richard Schaus. You can subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.